0: Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Train Spotting, the 1996 film directed by Danny Boyle, screenplay by John Hodge, based on the novel by Irvin Welsh. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Aran.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Brian Bittner. Hello. And Alex Cayeros, Hi. Now, before we jump in, we're going to match the explicitness of the movie in our podcast, <laughs> potentially, so there might be swear words ahead. Be warned. Um, but so we're doing a thing where one of the team members chooses a bunch of movies that the others haven't seen or maybe should see again. And we pick it and then we go watch it. So, Brian, Train Spotting was one of the films on your list that we picked. Why is Train Spotting one of your favorite films? Why do you want to talk about it?
2: Well, I wanted to talk about it because I thought it'd be funny to make you watch it. Uh- <laughs> and here we are.
0: And so it was.
2: <laughs> No, it it had come up before. I know that uh, Trisha loves this movie, and I know that Michael and Alex, you haven't seen it, so it sort of felt like okay, I at least have one ally, and then two film people <laughs> who haven't seen a movie that's usually considered one of those must see filmic kind of movies. So, right. it was always on my mind of something we could talk about. Um, I had had thoughts about. Doing a video on it at one point, and uh, and yeah, we can get into more like my history with the movie, but that was the that was the main reason why I thought it would be a good fit for a a movie that brands me, I guess, or or represents <laughs> me. Um, but that uh, wow. that would be interesting, an interesting conversation, to say the least.
0: For sure, yeah, and it it absolutely is one of those movies that is like has always been on my list of like I know I need to check this box at some point. So it was like, okay, this, has, this is on the list. Let's do it. Let's check this box. Uh, it has now been checked. <laughs> Trisha, it's also one of your favorite movies then?
1: Yes. Uh, this has always been one of my favorite movies since I saw it, which probably would have been uh, in college. So not when it came out. Um, I definitely would have been too young in 1996.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I, it's so hard to describe why I love this movie. It's really funny is thing number one. At least I found it really funny at the time
3: mm-hmm.
1: because partially because it is so irreverent. It is this like crazy sensory experience where it's so out there and in your face. It's just like you have to laugh in response to it because like you don't know what else you're f- supposed to fucking do. Basically, <laughs> like it
3: just it. it
1: it hits you over the head from the very first frame with the music and the editing and the direction. Just, mm-hmm. I don't know. If you can get on board with it early enough, it takes you on a ride. And I adore it for that reason. And I just really, really respect the filmmaking. Um, it was very influential at the time. And especially if you can yeah, tap into sort of like the fun of it <laughs> and not just... <laughs> how awful it is, <laughs>
2: Right.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, I don't know, I fell for it hard.
0: Yeah, well yeah, one of the things I wrote down when watching it was like, this feels like like an R-rated Edgar Wright movie, which there are r <laughs> Edgar right. Wright movies, but <laughs> Wait, you know, <laughs> a really R-rated Edgar Wright <laughs> right. movie, like hard the r. most extreme, but it, but with, yeah, the, the filmmaking style and the, wit and humor and callbacks and all of that stuff it, it had that kind of momentum that i mm-hmm. i recognized as being edgar wright ish
2: well and danny boyle ish right <laughs> y- you can almost track this sort of uh train spotting lock stock and two smoking barrels yep. snatch Shaun of the dead you know it's mm-hmm. like each one gets mm-hmm. a little sort of cleaner and less indie film feeling but they <laughs> all have this very stylized kind of hyperkinetic feel to them totally absolutely there's a slightly surreal
4: nature to the whole thing not i mean yeah (laughs) sometimes very surreal but even in the scenes that are meant to be not in a drug-induced state there's a kind of hyper reality to everything and uh it puts you in this weird mind state that you don't really feel like you're in reality anymore you're in this strange in-between and like you said trisha it really is a ride like I was kind of like breathless watching it. Like, I don't know (laughs) where I'm going or what's happening, but like, I'm just along for this insane ride and it's going to hit me over the head with like the most shocking thing I've ever seen. And then something funny is going to happen. And then like a poop joke. And like, (laughs) I was just like, what is, what is, yeah. Lots of poop. (laughs) Like it just, I was just like banged around by this movie. And I was like, (laughs) really not even sure what was happening to me. So it was, yeah, seeing it for the first time is quite a, like, jarring experience. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Well, I can't imagine being in my 30s and watching this for the first time. Right. Like, that is the thing, is that there's this youthful irresponsibility, sort of like, you know, they are living outside of normal society. They're living as though there are no consequences, even though they do run up against incredibly terrible consequences, right? The pursuit of that, sort of unhinged freedom if you're watching it when you're that age, like it just taps straight into your vein Um, and and channels that I can't, I have no idea what it would be like to watch this now for the first time.
2: Right. I mean, it also comes from an era that I think that we've, kind of 180 from maybe which mm. is the sort of unsanitized indie films of the 90s you know so yeah. you had like clerks and dazed and confused and uh train spotting and it was sort of like it was de rigueur to have a, a movie be just like no holds barred these are not good people they're doing crazy things and there's lots of swearing and bad behavior and stuff but that's just kind of the style of the time and then Movies have gotten a lot more like crisp and clean technically, but also I think subject, not subjectively, but subject matter wise mm. uh, since then. And it's not to say there aren't still movies that, that deal with some of this stuff, but there's not this sort of like, basically almost like with apocalypse. Now we are saying like, we're just going to go film people being horrible and put it and edit it and put it on screen kind of <laughs> feeling. You don't get that quite as much these days. So I think for yeah. me seeing train spotting in, the late 90s, it felt like, yeah, this feels like a current movie. It feels like a, a normal movie, whereas maybe watching it in 2020 is a little like, wait, this is what movies are.
1: <laughs> well, and, and Brian, what you just said reminded me that Pulp Fiction came out in 1994. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's there's a lot of like sort of Tarantino we kind of influence here too. not that it's violent, but just in sort of the uh, lack of safety in the world itself where like shit's gonna happen in this world and you can't predict what it is, right? Where the movie purposefully takes these turns that it, it's constantly leaving you questioning even what you're looking at and as well as what's happening in the way mm-hmm. that Tarantino movies kind of do where they don't in any way sort of, yeah, establish like a safe playing field for the action to happen on. And so I think there's that, that has that unhinged sort of feeling to it that you're describing. And then I was remembering too, 1996 was also the year of Fargo. Uh, it was also the year of From Dusk Till Dawn. Right. And Bound also came out that year.
2: Romeo Plus Juliet. Romeo Plus Juliet
1: was that year as well. Different filmmakers were really exploring with what they could make, um, not just in terms of like, quote unquote, bad behavior, but yeah, sort of pushing filmmaking technique.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Danny Boyle's previous film, his first film was called Shallow Grave, which Mm -hmm. also has Ewan McGregor and uh, Christopher Eccleston. And I think Carrie Fox is the is the other lead's name. And basically they hire a, a lodger and then he overdoses, but with a suitcase of money. So they decide to keep the money, but then they have to bury the body and right. they all basically go crazy you know so it's like to go from there to train spotting to a lifeless ordinary like it's definitely this mm-hmm. this very sort of not only hyper stylized but also dealing with this very uncomfortable subject matter in a way that is entertaining even if it's not fun in the way we would think of as like what's a fun movie You know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> right well it's interesting to think
4: about like high school me because High School Me was super into the Pulp Fictions, the Requiem mm-hmm. for a Dreams. Like there was that there's that angst that was in these 90s indie mm-hmm. like raw films that it's, it's interesting. I am like more of a fuddy-duddy now, I guess, you know, in my <laughs> 30s, you know, it's like I'm more kind of like looking down on it a bit. And it's like, oh, these like these guys and their, all their angst. It's like right. calm, da- calm down. At one yeah. point, I literally was like, why don't these people get a job? Was the <laughs> I was like, wow, I just my said God. that become a boomer
2: (laughs) you guys should watch train spotting too because it's really like it's really these 40 year olds looking back at these 20 year olds yeah oh interesting yeah it's interesting to realize that like for for you guys
4: yeah you watched it almost like in the appropriate like mind state of Mm -hmm. that like and it also was it was just exciting to discover that kind of cinema at that age you know when Mm -hmm. like when you're in high school and you're like oh whoa movies can be this too, like that's so radical that like, regardless of even the content or like I'm, I'm like over, you know, analyzing it now, but like back then I would have just been thrilled that a movie could even do this stuff. Like, Holy crap. Like, this is crazy.
2: <laughs> right. Um, I, I will say I did not see this for the first time in the correct mind state. I was at Woodstock 99 and, uh, it was 105 degrees outside. And the only place with air conditioning was this giant airplane hangar, or I guess, standard size airplane hangar, which is a giant room. (laughs) And they were just showing movies on one of the walls projected. And I just went in there to, it was like 95 degrees in there. So it was somewhat more tolerable. And I just pulled up like a pizza box to put my head on and just like tried to take a nap in the middle of the day because it was so hot. And I think I fell asleep during one 90s indie movie and then woke up (laughs) During train spotting, and there was just like poop was being flung places, and I was like, "What is happening? What's going on?" And then I was like, in and out of sleep. As (laughs) as, I argue, that is exactly
1: the correct (laughs) mind state to see this in. Right? What's the problem, Brian?
2: Your life is so different than mine. Yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. (laughs) He was in an airplane hangar, and then a
2: friend of mine who was following every piece of information about Star Wars Episode One he finds out that this actor, Ewan McGregor is playing Obi-Wan. So he goes and says, who's this? Oh, the guy from train spotting. I have to go watch train spotting. And then he's very confused as he's watching Renton and being like, this is Obi-Wan. I I don't understand. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But then he fell in love with train spotting and with Ewan McGregor. Um, And then I think at some point then he said, you know, you should, rewatch this movie and then I like watched it and watched I it again. Actually I, watched it, yeah. And so, so yeah. it's sort of like it's not one of those movies where I saw it once and was like, "This is great." It was more just my my um, love for it developed over maybe a decade of sort of watching it and then appreciating it and then watching it again and then finally uh, getting to a place where I was like, "Yeah, I this movie is sits really well with me."
1: And I fully admit that probably the bedrock of my love for this movie is just a rebellion. Like mm-hmm. at the time, of course, <laughs> I you know, I was raised really mm-hmm. conservatively. And in the same way that you like pick music, you know, your parents are going to hate. And you're like, this is my favorite band. Now you're like, get their band t-shirt and wear it around your parents because, you know, it's going to piss them off. Like, that's kind of why I love this movie, um, just because that's the spirit of this movie in general. Right. Mm-hmm. Is society wants you to be a certain way and you're just not going to because you don't want to because you don't want to you don't choose to you know that's obviously like a a juvenile sort of attitude to have and the characters in this movie of course push it to the most extreme place possible right they not only just they're not acting out necessarily in healthy ways that everyone sort of does in adolescence (laughs) they're Mm -hmm. definitely going too far with it but that just like spirit of, I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm 18 or whatever, that is fully embodied
3: here. Mm-hmm.
0: When it feels kind of like a a unique version of that that was a product of the times also, we kind of talked about this in our Terminator episode, I believe, where <laughs> sort of like yep. the idea of the every person mm-hmm. like existed in a way that it might not today mm. because culture is... There's just so many more cultures all happening. Like there isn't just the one culture that you can like rebel against. There are all these like mini niche cultures that are all happening at once.
2: Well, also there's, there's more diversity being being represented on screen and stuff. So we don't have the, well, here is the everyman because it's the same person we've seen in the last 10 movies we watched. Right. Exactly. <laughs>
0: right. And I think that that is what's so interesting to me about seeing this movie and then reflecting back. You know, I didn't see this movie at that time but around this time was when i was seeing things like fight club and definitely having that similar reaction of like yeah this so like capitalism and (laughs) i don't want to have a normal job and just be a normal guy and it sucks that we didn't have a war to fight in is the problem that i guess (laughs) edward norton has in this movie but there is just like this like spirit of like yeah rebelling against the oppression of like the whatever the hell culture like boring 90s right. yeah that that is Suburbs. appealing <laughs> right yeah that is so appealing
2: you're saying that i'm just stuck as a teenager because i love fight club and i love train spotting so i just still love the like 90s angst i think the things <laughs> you love like
0: you maintain that feeling of course like, yeah i think i would still like i'm curious to watch fight club again because uh-huh. I i want to know is 30 michael's going to overpower you know 17 year old michael Right. When, when I watch it again.
2: And and I think that the, um, the theme of this movie or one of the strong themes about this movie is that sort of 20 something angst, uh, and the sort of existential crisis, you know, choose life was actually this, um, it was basically the English version of just say no, it was this sort of Mm. eighties anti-drug ad campaign. So then it's, it's satirized in this monologue of to all these you know, 40-year-old squares choose life means, oh, you're getting a television and getting a matching, you know, Tyler Durden comes in and says you're matching a (laughs) striped couch or whatever. Um, And, uh, you know, and, and they're just sort of so rebellious against this, like, oh, this is what our parents are and our parents are lame and everybody is lame. And of course, the irony is their alternative is becoming burnouts and risking their lives and being miserable all the time and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think that like, that's why it's sort of fascinating, but also heartbreaking to watch these characters, because it's like, even if we have not been drug addicts in our lives, we all probably have been at that place, probably in our early adulthood, where we were so idea everything was so idealized where we were like i'm not going to live life like this and i'm not going to do all this lame stuff that everyone else does but then meanwhile we're probably doing something very hypocritical like not again uh, heroin but like just (laughs) we are saying we're going to do all these things and we're not actually doing all those things that we say they're going to do and then what the reason i love the sequel so much is because then it sort of takes that same concept but it deals with like the the 40 something existential crisis of great. Now I have kind of established my life and started a family and got a job. I still don't really know where I'm going. I still don't know what I want to do. And I and I just think like, I think those kinds of movies really speak to me because I think it's something we've all sat with in some way at, at some point
4: kind of coming off of that. One thing I identify with really early on in the in the film was the honesty right up front in the opening montage of like we're not stupid like we're not doing drugs for like in this weird way we're like the the dare program and and you know the british version of dare which is kind of like doesn't even tell you why people would ever do drugs they're just it's just kind of like just say no to this thing that is only bad and there's like no reason you would ever want to do it kids and i kind of liked the honesty up front of like we're not idiots like we're doing this because it's amazing it feels amazing and there's also that montage of people telling him he's poisoning his body while like drinking and smoking. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the kind of the really nice kind of like weird just revealing that like, yeah, there are like socially sanctioned drugs and the non socially sanctioned drugs. Obviously, heroin is like undeniably life destroying. So like <laughs> it's they there's there's definitely is a difference between alcohol, cigarettes and heroin. Sure. But and that's something that I kind of resonated with of just like also the weird arbitrariness of mm-hmm. drug laws of you know the fact that there are drugs out there that are maybe less harmful than alcohol but they're classified as schedule one you know like that helped me buy into the movie right up front in an interesting way which is like we're not going to like talk down to you about right drug use it's, it's about like the reality of this experience and yeah and so that was I, that was resonant and would have been resonant especially back when i was you know
2: Rebelling, yeah, he has. He has that line where he says, "Like, uh, I I took some of these drugs from my mom, her her legally sanctioned, exactly, exactly, yeah, the pharma drugs."
0: Editing is one of the most important and easily one of my favorite parts of the filmmaking process. The first time you put two shots back to back and realize that suddenly you've created meaning is a truly thrilling moment. But one of the challenges of editing is that, like anything else, it takes a lot of practice. So what do you do if you don't have a camera to go out and shoot something? Well, what I would often do when I was younger is just take footage from elsewhere and start to play with it until I created something that I liked. It's a simple idea, but it can be hard to know where to start, which is why I want to recommend the Skillshare class Filmmaking from Home Turn Found Footage Into a Compelling Video by filmmaker Penny Lane. The class is all about transforming existing content into something new. And I can say from experience that this is a great and inexpensive way to hone your editing skills. The better you are at creating something from nothing, the better you'll be later at turning something into something great. This is just one of the thousands of classes on filmmaking, design, and writing that you can find on Skillshare. And if you use our link, Skillshare.com slash beyond the screenplay, you get two free months of premium membership. So start practicing your editing skills today at skillshare.com slash beyond the screenplay. Thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay.
1: I think the thing for me that I really like about this movie is that some of these other films that we've mentioned, something like Fight Club, or even going back to something like Network, is that those movies are more about like broad sort of like social or sociopolitical facts or um structures so i think both of those films fight club and network are about consumerism and like it's making a much larger commentary so if you think about how a movie like fight club gets pushed and pushed until it really it's not chaos necessarily purely within the lives or you know even within the bodies of somebody like tyler durden or the narrator It's more about like what society tells them they have to be. It's sort of much bigger. Whereas I think movies like this are about self-destructive impulses, like within one's own body. And that exists within the context of pressures from society. But I don't necessarily consider this movie to be like anti-consumerism or anti any sort of larger social structure. It's just sort of a journey into one's self. Uh, and the like, self-destructive wrestling these these four particular characters are doing. So the choose life monologue is setting up a dichotomy, but at the same time, what you were saying, Alex, it's diving into what is that dark seed um, or that dark core of, especially in a particular time in your life, that makes you want to like probe into consciousness self-destruction like it kind of aims more at that to me rather than yeah pushing against something like political
2: right yeah and i think that one thing i really appreciate about the character design of the of the five main characters of this movie is that they do sort of represent this spectrum of, Mm -hmm. of, of life, you know, for these characters, uh, for this world, I should say, where, as you were saying, Alex, the, the two characters who say like, oh, I would never put something like that in my body are Tommy and Begbie who are arguably like the cleanest and, and worst of them. Like the one who is sort of the most, maybe on paper good. And the one who is just the most violent and vile kind of person. (laughs) And of course, Tommy has this very tragic arc, which we can talk about, but, um, but then in the middle you have spud who is uh, you know an addict but is very naive and sort of pure and just sort of feels lost and then you have on the other sort of more towards Begbie end, you have sick boy who is more of a kind of bad person you know and, and like mark says he only stole the money because right. sick boy he thought of it first before sick boy did anyway mm-hmm. and then you have mark in the middle where he is sort of he's not Good and he's not bad, uh, but he is sort of like in the middle of this sea of characters. And you see the the negative influence the characters have on him, but then you also see the negative influence that he has on someone like Tommy, right? By by enabling him, you know. And I just think that like I really appreciate that it's such a broad character design, even for these characters who are basically this like single unit. If that makes sense,
1: definitely. Yeah, I think that's also contributes to the feeling of the like friend group thing mm-hmm. where when you're designing like a, a team or a group of friends, um, not a team in the way that we talked about in our draws video, <laughs> like a team that has a goal. <laughs> this team has no goal.
4: Um, they have like one goal near the end. <laughs> right, they like right. They barely yeah, yeah, yeah. do, yeah.
1: <laughs> sure, but when, when you're designing um, like more of the character web that we're talking about and that we mentioned in something like Shaun of the Dead, What you really are discussing are the different influences or different takes that people have on sort of like the same theme. And so as you're saying, Brian, they have distinct personalities, distinct reasons for behaving the way that they do. And yet they're all kind of circling this one central issue. And at the heart of that is Renton, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think I agree. It's just really, really good character design. And, And it helps you go on that like, I'm just going along with this group of friends kind of ride which they you know acknowledge in the dialogue like yeah Begbie's crazy but he's a mate so what can you do
2: right (laughs) that
4: that was always something that was like yeah like hard it was hard for me to identify with sometimes where it's like yeah he's like insane and like doing the worst things possible but like He's a friend. So I feel like that's an example of a thing that
0: like doesn't translate to like a more mature viewing, like seeing it as, you know, someone in the mid thirties. It's like, well, no, that's a terrible reason to keep hanging out with this probable murderer i don't know <laughs> yeah, like right, at right, points, right. right. i do feel like to that end also the casting is really great like yeah. at, that's one of the fun things about going and watching this final like i knew you and mcgregor was in it obviously mm-hmm.
2: there's so many actors i recognize. kelly mcdonald yeah. yeah the
0: guy from Grey's anatomy
2: <laughs> which guys is the guy from great tommy yeah. uh, he was a doctor in Grey's anatomy kevin mccain for me
0: i was like oh it's that guy that had like a bit role in wonder woman as Spudden. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay
4: um, the, 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 tank driver from children of men is there like drug dealer the guy that
0: talks in third person yeah Yeah. i was immediately terrified when he came on screen (laughs) because of children of men
2: oh man like ozark like peter mullen is awesome and he's always terrifying (laughs) yeah yeah he's he he is the co-lead with olivia coleman in tyrannosaur which was one of my other Mm -hmm. movies along with train spotting two of 2010s and he is just a a absolutely terrifying and absolutely heartbreaking performance and character in that movie
0: and yeah and you and mcgregor i was watching that and I was like oh yeah of course you became a star yeah like,
2: it's one of those performances yeah. dude skinny ewan in the in the nightclub scene like that's sexy man um <laughs> i appreciate that danny boyle uh said that he he thought about malcolm mcdowell in a clockwork orange or yep. michael caine in alfie as a sort of character who's charming but despicable we kind of talked about this in our patreon uh scott pilgrim episode too they literally have the clockwork orange bar in (laughs) in train spotting but but a character where it's like yeah the things they're doing are terrible and we totally appreciate that they're terrible but also there is something about them that makes us go okay i i'm I feel comfortable following you down this dark rabbit hole because of one, how the character is written and presented, but also just who you actually cast in the role to, to make you go, you're going to watch this person be pretty not cool for a while.
1: Well, I was thinking about that. And it's the thing about Renton as a character is that he is sort of generally disdainful of other people, but not in any like pointed or really evil sort of way. Harmful. Yeah, exactly. Like, Begbie is so violent and terrible, and generally just like wants to fuck shit up with everybody. And and Renton is like has no qualms about stealing Tommy's like sex tape, right. um, and just kind of says that he's like I just watched this video that was stolen from one of my best friends. And and we you know we see that at the end when he takes the money. The video
2: shop, Tommy, the fucking video shop.
1: <laughs> but at the same time, it doesn't really feel mean spirited. Yeah, like he's self-involved and he's not really a good person, but he's not actually trying to harm people. He just it feels like that might be a byproduct of what happens. And I'm not excusing any of that, but I think that's part of what makes him charming.
2: Yeah. And I think the Tommy example is great because we see. the domino effect of how awful that choice is. You know, in the moment it's this, it's this funny thing, like, oh, you stole your friend's say, like, okay, that's maybe not morally great, but like, okay, it's kind of silly and like a like a kiddish thing to do. And then what happens as a result is she leaves Tommy and then Mm -hmm. he's miserable and then what happens as a result he asks Mark for heroin which as soon as he shows his money Mark allows him and what happens as a result he gets HIV what happened and then he fucking dies you know yeah and I think it's it's a very it's a very strong choice and and a clear choice to take this sort of cleanest and sort of i don't want to say like angelic or anything like that but these sort of um the 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 cleanest on paper of those characters and actually send them all the way there and to show how much of that was enabled by his friends who were not looking out for their their friend the way they should have been exactly yeah mentioning hiv that was
4: when that came up in the film Mm -hmm. it reminded me like oh my god yeah like the this community Mm -hmm. you know we always think of the gay community as being affected by hiv in the 80s and 90s but this drug user community was one of the main you know victims of the epidemic and that was really interesting to remember and and the way it almost made the movie kind of like entered that period at a certain turning point where everybody was asking like are you clean are you clean like right just having like that cultural and like, societal like uh context for this film also suddenly made it really interesting to me I-, I remembered oh my god this is a whole other layer to what it meant to use injection drugs in this time and like the paranoia and uh and the and the, the tragedy of tommy you know it's really interesting
1: yeah and i think that shift in the movie when tommy dies there are several shifts here where it gets progressively sort of worse and worse for the characters, you know, first where the baby dies,
4: uh, the, that baby scene, I was not mm-hmm. prepared for that. Sorry. That like kind of <laughs> fucked me up. That was yeah. like dead babies that look like dead in that way. Like mm-hmm. that's just like the darkest shit you can do. <laughs> yeah. like, I kind of resent a movie sometimes when it like shocks me with images like that. Cause so I'm just like now I have to like have that image in my brain for a while. And like now I, Now it's fine, but like definitely like the period after that scene, I was like, ah, you just did that to me. Fuck you. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I think that this movie, obviously it's it's funny because for me, who's seen the movie so many times, I forget about some of the more shocking moments because I am I remember more of the characters and mm-hmm. the themes and the music and things like that. And then of course you think back on the movie or you're rewatching it and you're like, oh right, <laughs> there's this. And I do think it's interesting how the sort of shocking quality is introduced. And, and I think all the gross out stuff is, it's, it's very in your face in a sort of like, we're going to shock you kind of way, but it's also so on theme and showing how terrible these characters' lives are. His terrible life. is characters have, um, <laughs> which which you know at first it's like the worst toilet in Scotland, where yeah. you're like, oh, this is gross, like, but like also it's funny, yeah. <laughs> and you think now he's uh-huh. underwater, and it's it's and then you have Spud, you know, waking up in the bed, and of course then it's like it's almost Dumb and Dumber like poop humor at that point, but again it's just it's a, a direct result of the life choices that he makes that he is embarrassing himself and just like reaching this like low point. And then, of course, you go to to the baby. And then, you know, the the most I mean, anytime they go back on heroin after quitting or after not doing it, it's it's just heartbreaking in this movie. And I think it's so powerful. But of course, the the maybe most heartbreaking moment in the whole movie is not the baby, but the moment immediately after the baby where
3: exactly where
2: sick boy says say something, Mark and Mark says, I'm cooking up. And then the, and then the baby's mother just does it too. Yeah. And then, um, you know, there's a line about how like the only cure for their misery was more misery basically. And then of course you have Mark's recovery sequence with the whole crazy, like horror. It's like (laughs) almost like a horror movie suddenly this montage. Um, and I think that whether whether that stuff works for you or whether it's just too much or whatever, I do appreciate that. As opposed to a lot of movies with like poop jokes or whatever, they're not really there for anything other than to be shocking and stupid. But that every time this movie goes either weird or gross or just dark and upsetting, it's very much as a direct result of the choices that these characters have made.
1: Right, and and that's kind of what I was getting at, Bry. Which is that um, the harm that is caused by Renton and by everybody in this movie is a result of that self-focus like pursuit of um, basically just purely selfish desires Mm -hmm. as opposed to, which is something that Not that we can get on board with sort of like morally as a society, but is a little bit more understandable than like a supervillain who wants to just like kill a million people or, you know, like those people are less accessible to us because there is psychologically at the heart of all of us a a self-interest. We can kind of understand and even like characters that are primarily self-interested. Mm -hmm. And so that scene that you're talking about is the perfect example of this, where Allison is like, cook us up a shot, Rents. And he said, okay, so I cooked up and she got a shot, but only after me, that went without saying. Mm -hmm. And so even someone close to him that's in the worst pain imaginable is secondary to his desires. And of course that ultimately is what, you know, enacts destruction in the friend group and leaves Renton stranded and alone by himself and totally isolated at the end of the movie kind of victorious but but isolated Mm -hmm. at the end of the movie but still i think that there's something to our palette um i don't know our psychological palette if i can put it that way that finds that potentially less damning than someone who is setting out to hurt other people for money or for egotistical reasons or just because they like hurting other people, which is what Begbie does. Begbie Mm -hmm. loves hurting other people. Renton doesn't have any particular desire to hurt other people. It's mainly his pursuit of his own self-interest that is sort of what drives this entire plot. And so when he tries to get clean, it's because it's in his best interest to do so at that time. When Mm -hmm. he falls back into drug addiction, that's also because it's in his self-interest at the time. And so that's why I think that this movie is doing something interesting psychologically and why we were able to recognize ourselves in somebody like Renton, even if we ultimately would never act the way that he does.
2: Right. This movie also has a strong midpoint where he goes back uh, back on, but then he just has this moment of doubt when he does it. So it's sort of, he has not made this change that he needs to make in his life yet, but it's the first moment where you see him not just do it as an obviously I'm going to do this thing. He, he goes back and he sits down and he just takes this moment where he's not sure. And then, and then he does it anyway. But, uh, but I just think it's, I I like those sort of quiet midpoints in movies where you just, you see maybe a light start to flicker in someone's mind, but they maybe haven't, you know, we talked about like when Harry met Sally, like just this very quiet dance of these two characters realizing something but then nothing actually happens. It's just this like little, we see like a little glint in their eye. And I think that that's, um, that's the moment where Mark starts to kind of realize he needs to change. It just takes him a while to, to do so, you know? Mm. Yeah, it, it's an interesting, a,
0: a thought I was having while watching this movie is I was kind of reflecting back on this idea that as a storyteller, you want the audience to empathize with your protagonist, generally speaking. Yeah, And I think this film does accomplish that and like brings you along on the journey with him and you are invested in him despite the things that he's doing or kind of accidentally finds himself in. And I think that's kind of part of it too, is he kind of stumbles into these like, right. Yeah. (laughs) I think that makes him like extra likable. And I think a, a thing that I always just as a personal thing, think about is like when you're, telling a story about someone who needs to change how do you portray their old world where Mm. they're doing the thing they shouldn't do in like exactly the right like tone and I think it it comes up for me in movies like this where it's like you know doing drugs is bad and like if you read a list of all the things that happen in this movie when they are doing drugs, you would be like, Yeah, this is absolutely horrible. But my experience when I'm watching it is sort of like as we get into the second half when he's living his life in London and is clean and stuff, I'm like, oh, this isn't as fun as when they were like yeah. <laughs> on drug trips uh-huh. and like the filmmaking was like going crazy and like playing. Except for the London montage. That part's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fun. So yeah, I think that's that's a question that occasionally comes up for me in certain films is like you obviously want the audience to empathize with the protagonist and like you guys were saying earlier understand why they're doing these horrible things that there is like you were saying alex like people do drugs because it feels good like mm-hmm. like that yeah we shouldn't like pretend there's a reason why it's happening yeah right yeah and so but just like that balance of like you know, and, and even kind of like you were saying, Brian, we're like we go back and watch it, and sometimes you like forget, like, oh right, this happens and this happens. Like mm-hmm. the things that I walk away with remembering from this movie are the like, oh man, those crazy fun drug trip scenes where the filmmaking's going crazy. Like those are the things I'm going to remember more than the kind of the end state of things. And so that's and Wolf of Wall Street is another example yep. that always comes right. Right. to my head. Oh yeah. And so I think it's it's an interesting and kind of unsolvable idea, but just it's it's an interesting thing to have in your head as a storyteller is like what responsibilities do you have? Is there any way to navigate it perfectly? The answer is no. And so what choices do you make?
2: Yeah, I, I think you're you're juggling a lot of things when you are dealing with some of that stuff. I mean, I mean, I've never I've just never generally believed that showing a character in a movie doing something is suggesting it's a good thing to do, but obviously just cause I don't feel that way doesn't mean other people might feel that way. So I think you have to juggle a few things. One of which is you have to show that the character loves doing this thing, or you have to show how the, how it makes the character feel. So the character loves doing heroin. You can't just show them being miserable all the time. You have to show them being, you know, better than six better than any fucking meat injection in the world um (laughs) like you have to show their their response to it um and then you also have to think about your audience enjoying watching the movie you know i've talked about the word entertaining before which we generally think to mean like fun and light but to me entertaining just means like am i having am i am i compelled watching Mm -hmm. this Am, am i having not again not having a good time but am i having an emotional reaction to this that i that i want to be having and not just i'm watching people be miserable and horrible right. and and that kind of thing you know with any sort of style or or kind of playfulness you do with it you do run the risk of someone going hey that looks fun but then i also think the structure of a movie is important where the more fun some of that stuff looks the more tragic it is when you see their comeuppance, you know. Yeah. And I think that if you saw someone doing something bad and they looked miserable doing it, and the next scene they're dead, it's like, well, yeah, that that is logical. But if it's like, look at this crazy fun thing I did, you know, da-da-da. Uh, and then you cut to and then they died, or then this horrible thing happened, or, you know, whatever, then it's like, then that's when it becomes the most affecting. And that's the sort of as you as we talked about before, Michael, like the uh, taking your guard down so that you can kick someone in, in the heart kind of like it is is that your guard is up if you're watching somebody do terrible things and you think they're terrible and you just feel terrible watching it but if there is sort of this fun entertaining kind of playfulness with it then when you see the the other side of it the okay great you had a really nice trip guess what your fucking baby died like That's when that's when I think that you go from 60 to zero in such a heartbreaking way that whether or not, you know, movie X or or TV show Y pulls it off well, that's when it can be the most affecting and really get that point through.
1: I agree. And of course, that goes back to dynamics, which we've talked about many, many times on this podcast about just having a variety of like you're laughing out loud. It's really hilarious and funny. And then suddenly it's it's very tragic and it almost hits you harder. So there's that. I think, too, that, that Renton does, though, go on a journey in this. And I would argue that he it does emerge changed from it, right? Like, mm-hmm. there yeah. is a structure to this movie. There is a beginning, a middle, and an end. And Renton ends up in a completely different place than he started. He ends up having to do that. And I think this is what's interesting he ends up in that quote unquote better place because he decides to screw over all of his friends. But at the same time, they are toxic people in his Mm -hmm. life. Like they are the ones that pull him back in every time he's like maybe getting out. And like he goes to London and he's not happy in London necessarily, but it gets so much worse when Begbie shows up and then sick boy shows up and, and then they have this gag deal that they that they're going to do. And so he ends up having to cut those ties, and there's this character consistency where he is still very self-interested, but he manages to harness his like character's superpower of being incredibly selfish mm. to get himself out of his situation. So there is, there is a change inside of Renton where he goes from being disempowered, and then and in his self-interest by being a chain to heroin as much as he is chained to these people with whom he does heroin Mm -hmm. and by the end of it he has cut the chains to both because he has like selfishly decided to emerge out of that i mean i i think it's an interesting conversation about like what a character art can be
2: right but i also agree with you michael like you are always running the risk of the sort of glorification angle and that kind of thing. Like, yeah. oh
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: Um, But I just always think there's a difference between like having something be fun to watch versus an artist saying this is something that that you should go want to do. But how do you juggle? How do you juggle that? I feel like for me, the the interesting thing with films
4: like this, and this is where kind of Wolf of Wall Street falls into the same category and Mm -hmm. some other films where it's like and it's maybe just kind of my outsider perspective as a gay man of just really having trouble like being along for the ride or like feeling a part of the team or like hmm. feeling like one of the guys in these movies because I feel like a lot of the fun and a lot of like the kind of what I'm even hearing from you guys talking about like oh a sick boy and like yeah that character and, like yeah I love that guy. It's like I didn't like I kinda of, I like Tommy because like I could I could kind of identify with him and I've watched his like tragic downfall. But like mm-hmm like I just kind of am like for me there's no part of me that's like relishing the like I don't know like straight guy fuck up group like dynamics like <laughs> right like I'm not, I'm not I'm not like I'm not charmed by it really and I'm not like so it's, it's interesting just like how I feel like yeah these movies play for a lot of people and like yeah the movie like reveals how ultimately this lifestyle ends in a horrible place but like it was so much fun to watch the whole time because like you know, the antics of these guys and like all the like crazy stuff they did
3: there's a lot of and antics I, and mm-hmm. i'm just like
4: not even i think it's just it's an interesting phenomenon for me of like i wasn't really with them with during those antics and i don't that's this is more about me maybe of just like being too stuck up or something but it's just interesting how I, I i'll hear people talk wistfully about a film where it is this kind of anti-hero story usually about a group of like straight white guys and i'll just be kind of like yeah, like I watched them do all that stuff, but I wasn't like yeah, you know, it, it, right. I didn't I didn't have the thrill that I hear other people having going on that ride. It's interesting.
2: Yeah, I I don't think it has to do with um with being stuck up or anything. I think it's a sort of style thing because we I, I was just thinking about this with Mad Men, speaking of straight white guys like Mad Men was a show <laughs> where where you show a lot of people who are basically bad people. And I personally just didn't enjoy their antics or, or or what they were doing as much as other people. You know, and I think it's just at some point it just becomes a a style choice and a personal preference thing of if we are going to show anti heroes and we are going to show them do um, bad things or upsetting things or anything like that. Well, you may like watching it. You may not. You know, and, and there's there's no sort of right answer for that. But uh, but it's usually a lot more interesting than saying, like, let's have a character that everyone definitely loves because that tends to not be a great character. Or not tends to not be a great character, but there's a reason characters have flaws, you know. I just want to enter into this
0: uh, a movie that I keep coming back to and that I was thinking about when when watching the movie was Groundhog Day mm-hmm. as yeah. as an example of a character who starts off super flawed, but at no point am I like... I'm having like the like movie is fun and funny the whole time. And partially, I think because it's a comedy. And as we've talked about before, like having assholes and comedies. Yeah. Like needed. You need it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but like, I feel like there isn't a point in Groundhog Day where I'm like, ah, oh, I wish he was still being an asshole because it was more fun to watch it when he was being an asshole. Like I and I feel like maybe it's the inclusion of other characters and other perspectives that are, you know, that have a a kind of a moral grounding place where other people can see that we're allowed to identify like Phil is an asshole and there's something good in him, but like we're seeing how his being a jerk is affecting other people in a just clearly negative way. And I think sometimes that's like missing for me or like, again, Wolf of Wall Street is the thing to pick on, I guess, but like, (laughs) I feel like you can kind of name people that do that or have a you know a shot or two of someone that like is an outsider that sees what they're doing and is like this is clearly awful but sometimes it just feels like the filmmakers like see we checked the box look we said it's awful and now back to doing horrible antic things but I think you're completely right Brian where are like it's I think it is completely subjective it's what you're bringing into it and what you're reading into it and so it's I think it's impossible to account for everyone and and navigate it perfectly, and if you go too far, then you're potentially robbing people of a, a, an experience that is valuable and so that's again why why I think it's not really a solvable thing, mm-hmm. and that's almost why I'm so fascinated by it is that it's this thing that clearly has an effect but maybe can't be measured
1: to chime in on this thing i I think that for me, I'm way more willing to give it a pass when looking into the human psychology of what makes people assholes is like part of the text. Mm. And I, I think that that's like, I actually really like Wolf of Wall Street for that reason. And I think that movies that are, are genuinely operating on a level of critique, which I think fight club also is, are are the ones that are committed to doing a, a really Serious interior look at the life of the character and why it is that they're behaving the way that they are the movies i'm less well less willing to give a pass to are the ones that are glorying in the actions without questioning the motives um and the psychology of behind why definitely and, yeah. and so I, I and I think that that's part of the reason I'm able to really enjoy train spotting because for me that's what the whole movie is about it's about the psychology of why i 'm able to have fun with the antics because the movie also does the serious look at the psychology of why. Um, and you know, yeah, exactly. It's, it's about self-destruction, self-involvement, all the things I've already said.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, and despite problems that I had, I do feel like the very last moment of the film was very affecting for me. So when the film starts and there is that voiceover monologue about Mm -hmm. like consumerism, I was a little bit doing that like eye-rolly thing of like, okay, yeah, 90s, all right, this is, all right, we're doing that, that's fine. Mm. Uh, and then the antics and all the things happen and you go on this journey. And then by the time it ended, I really was like rooting for Renton and like, okay, thank God you took those idiots' money. Thank yeah. God you're leaving them behind. Right. And then he's like, and now I'm gonna be just like you. And then he starts listing all those things again. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I really did feel the like, oh, okay, there is like, commentary being made here now like this is the thing that i was rooting for how do i feel about Mm -hmm. that and so like again i I cannot argue that it is not effective to be clear right
1: that goes straight into what i wanted to talk about next which is just a sort of a look at the opening sequence here and i rewatched it i don't know maybe two or three times this week in preparation to talk about it and I was just so impressed on rewatching it at the filmmaking and the way that it's cut together. Mm-hmm. We haven't done a dive into voiceover here. It was such a smart decision on the part of the writers. This voiceover, uh, that monologue, the Choose Life monologue, was originally in the middle of the movie. And then they moved it to the opening because they couldn't figure out how to like start it off. And I think it's so critical into putting the audience right into the action The lifestyle, like the character's mindsets, and of course, the language of it, which (laughs) did you guys have to watch it with subtitles on?
4: I
0: absolutely watched it with subtitles. Good advice. I was thinking like, I think if they were speaking Spanish, I would understand more than than what they're actually speaking now.
1: I really respect both the writing of that monologue as well as the editing of that entire sequence.
4: Yeah, the editing was amazing.
1: It's the the sequence is like actually intercut between three things. So you have the soccer match that's intercut with the scene of them being chased down the street. And then you have the scene with Sick Boy and Allison, like, and uh, Spud's actually also there. Mother Superior's there. And they're just like getting high in the drug house. And Renton is like, you know, in the other room of that apartment or whatever. So those three scenes are intercut throughout that entire thing in just the most really clever I, it's just i love it yeah it's really good
2: for anyone who is not interested in watching drain spotting too. present company included um <laughs> i definitely watch the choose life uh mm-hmm. monologue from that because this character veronica asks him what choose life is and he starts explaining it and as he's explaining it he finds himself going into monologue mode mm-hmm. and then it's intercutting you know and he's like it's like choose Twitter and hope like choose posting the social media and hoping someone cares and choose grabbing the latest piece of tech and all this kind of stuff. And, um, sorry, if sitting too close to home for anybody, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but then as it goes and it's intercutting that with, um, with different sort of takes on, on just modernity basically. But then mm-hmm. as it goes through, then you realize Mark's starting to talk more about himself and he had gone mm-hmm. back and seen, um, Diane Kelly McDonald, who is a lawyer now and is sort of, you know, is much more successful and, and sort of looks, looks down on him a little bit. Uh, and it's intercutting him saying like, choose disappointment, choosing the loves, the ones you losing, the ones you love, that kind of thing. And it's watch him watching up through the window as he's watching her, like do her job. And she doesn't know he's watching and things like that. So it's, it's really clever in the way that it's like, we're going to revamp this monologue for modern day but also there's there's a lot deeper stuff going on here uh, than just like we're going to list a bunch of things that people are doing you know because then it Mm -hmm. starts to become about himself and about the character and what he is dealing with at this time Uh, and you can see and Ewan Gregor's performance is amazing because he goes from just being like this very idealist like yeah here's all my philosophies about life and by the end you can see that he is shaken because of how much he is affected by the things he just said to himself basically also the music you know like you have you start the movie with uh, with diggy Pop's Lust for Life. And then you have um uh, which of course, like that that's what makes part of what makes that opening sequence so iconic is that that music. And the sequel also does this really cool thing where Mark goes back to his apartment and he puts the record on and it hits the first note and he stops it, and then uh he just doesn't want so that you don't actually hear the song until a certain point in the movie where you sort of feel like the character has earned it. But then I also love Lou Reed's Perfect Day, which is this song about like yes. we drank sangria in the park and we went and saw a movie. It's playing while Mark is being taken to the hospital and in like in, in rug rug view, <laughs> rug mm-hmm. cam. Yep. I love um, sequence. And, and then, of course, you get into sort of like the 90s techno and everything. But it just it really I've talked before about the mood of a movie and how affecting it is. And I think re- I also rewatched the sequel, if it's not clear. Um, and it just strikes me how much a movie like both the train spottings, or we've talked about Drive or David Lynch movies or Blade Runner or Seven, like the music and the mood that like the the tone that the movie is creating for me can be one of the most affecting things about it. Granted, it's usually helpful when it is a take on the theme and a take on what the movie is trying to do and not just the movie being stylized. But there is this, as you've talked about before, Alex, this sort of feeling of like, what is my experience while sitting here watching this movie and and mm. I think that for me music a lot of times can have a big part it can play, play a big part in that.
1: It is a little bit tricky though because as a screenwriter you often do not get to choose your music ever. Like Of course. And so I I'm actually weirdly in a, that position right now in something that I'm writing where I'm writing something that's set in the 70s and like the music is like would be such a huge part of the film going experience in terms of putting the audience into the world, which you absolutely have to do. And which I think this opening sequence does so masterfully as well as the the music choices throughout. Right. Like when we've talked about world building before, um, a lot of that is the texture of the world. And and that's conveyed sonically uh as well as visually. And so, but as a screenwriter, you often slash never get to pick what like songs end up in your your movie. And so um you know, somebody like Danny Boyle here who made this movie for $1.5 million. Jeez. $1.5 million. Wow. Is what? How much this movie cost. Yeah. Uh, it's nuts, um, and yeah, seven weeks of of uh, shooting. Wow. That was it. That
4: must have been delirious. <laughs> That's I mean, unbelievable, it, it, truly.
1: So, and, and it contributes to the the raw feeling that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. With, like indie filmmaking in the '90s always kind of feels like grungy, like this because lack of budget and time and experience from a lot of these directors. I haven't read the opening sequence on the page. I would doubt very much that a lot of that kinetic energy. Um, comes through that you get from watching it in the screenwriting. However, I do think there's a lesson if you're writing a screenplay now, and maybe this is just my lesson if we're getting to that part. I do think there's a lesson to be learned from trying to convey on the page as clearly as you can the texture of the world. Mm -hmm. So like, probably in 1995, when this was being written, you wouldn't have been able to choose your soundtrack as a screenwriter. I mean, I don't know. I have no idea if John Hodge how closely he was working with Danny Boyle. But now I do think there's room in modern screenwriting to use all the tools at your disposal to try to convey. So like the solution I'm going with in my screenplay, and you could take this for what it is, that's set in the seventies, is writing the names of well-known songs that I think have the spirit on the page. And so I'll like, in my actual screenwriting, I'll do something like, it's a little bit something like this Marvin Gaye song. And just write, you know, it's like, a song is playing, it's probably this
3: mm-hmm. and writing mm.
1: the name of it on the page. You might not get it. You won't get it probably, but trying to put your reader at least into the headspace, because that's your job as a screenwriter is to try to get the energy across. And yeah, I mean, and then of course, going back to just how to open a movie, this is a masterclass and you can't always move a monologue from the middle of your film to the opening. <laughs>
2: but Yeah. Um, a funny example of that is uh, the social network where Aaron Sorkin had written uh, during Mark leaving from being broken up with uh, to to back to his dorm. he I think he'd written Elvis Costello's Allison, I think was the song. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. I've literally been trying to Google to verify. Right. As, as we've been talking. <laughs> and, and I think it's like on the Blu-ray, you can actually watch the side by side where they they cut it to that and it just felt like he was sluggishly like moving through the space because this like mm-hmm. kind of kinetic song was playing. And then Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross write this... 12 note somber uh, piano thing with like haunting drones in the background that they never wrote for that scene even. They just, it was some of the music they had written. And then when probably Ren Clays like actually put it there a- a- in editing to, to play with it, then it was suddenly like, now it felt like Mark was like speeding through the campus <laughs> because it was over this very somber. But I also think that that music sets the tone for the movie mm-hmm. after this 10 minute long sequence and a loud bar and all that kind of stuff that now we're in like somber music land and Sorkin didn't plan that you know he had a very different song choice in mind and sometimes that's sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but but I agree with you Tricia that like communicating as much of what your intention is on the page is important in in any aspect of screenwriting yeah yeah
0: and it's also I think why Sorkin needs a fincher right
2: yeah right
4: Hello, Beyond the Screenplay listeners. The four of us, and especially our producer, Vince, love hearing your thoughts and comments about the show. And a great way to do that is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. A listener by the name of Enemy Friends wrote...
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's cute.
1: I I like it.
4: That's what I think of you guys as. The name Enemy Friends makes me very unsettled. I (laughs) don't know if I can trust this person. (laughs) Anyway, Enemy Friends wrote, as an aspiring screenwriter and director, this podcast has become invaluable for me. I'm always looking forward to the next episode and the discussions always open up a new way of thinking about a movie for me, even more than their videos. Uh, Thank you, Enemy Friends. Um, And I know for myself as a fellow screenwriter, it can be one of the most difficult and rewarding challenges you can ever face tackling a feature screenplay. So if our podcast helps in any way on your journey, that makes me super happy.
1: So proud and honored. Thank you.
4: I just feel like it's a lot of pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Enemy Friends, for your review. And uh, please let us know what you think of the show by leaving us your review on Apple Podcasts or hit us up directly on Twitter. We love hearing from you guys. And with that, let's go back to the show.
0: Why don't we officially go around and say what lessons we're going to take from train spotting. Alex, do you want to start us off?
4: Sure. I was mentioning earlier uh, before we started recording that I feel like this movie watching it, it feel like like a sister to requiem for a dream kind of almost like the more fun <laughs> requiem for a dream i would say definitely the more fun <laughs> a lot a lot more fun <laughs> um, yeah requiem for a dream is just like completely devastating from top to bottom uh, but one other aspect of it besides the obvious like you know drug use parallels is the the use of a like, visual metaphor to get across altered state of consciousness mm. and one sequence that really stuck out to me in train spotting that felt like it felt like it could have been in Requiem was the overdose scene where you have that visual thing like sinking into mm-hmm. the carpet. Mm-hmm. And it re- actually reminded me of even like get out, like the sunken place. Yeah. Like, yeah. like representing something with this visual metaphor. And it was just so effective uh in that sequence. And there were other other parts of the of the film that did similar visual metaphors where it's not this is not literally maybe what you're experiencing on the drug trip
1: not literally in a toilet
4: (laughs) exactly exactly but there's there's something deeper communicated with that visual metaphor so yeah i think i really appreciated danny boyle's choices in creating a a headspace representing a state of consciousness with these really interesting visual metaphors and uh it's, it's also why i love working for a dream and what struck me about that movie when i did see that at the age I was supposed to or whatever, you know, in high school, I was so blown away by it because I had never seen a film mm. that just, you know, it it wasn't literal, but it was communicating the, like, deeper emotion energy, like, thing of what it meant to be high or what it meant to be spiraling into despair. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, sh- it showed it to me with metaphor. So kudos to Danny Boyle. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Trisha?
1: Like from a process point of view, one thing that I think I'm going to take away from this is this idea of like, I don't know. I feel like I might've said this on the podcast before, but like let the characters talk and you don't have to use it as a voiceover, but it's often really helpful to like write a monologue for your Mm -hmm. character, even just as a technique to to get yourself on the same wavelength as your character, to capture the voice of a character, like sit down and write a monologue Maybe you'll use parts of it. Maybe you won't. But let them tell you. And I don't try to. I'm not trying to sound mystical about the screenwriting process. But just, yeah, I think that some of this stuff comes out of the novel, obviously. Um, and some of the the most iconic lines in this come out of the novel. But I also think it's quite obvious that the character work that was done here was a product of letting the characters speak. So, You know, Sick Boy's whole thing is that he's obsessed with Sean Connery in the novel. He often like has a dialogue with Sean Connery, Mm. like Sick Boy's character is like talking back and forth with his imagined version of Sean Connery in the novel. And that often yields you interesting character insights that you wouldn't be able to get if you're writing about them in the third person. So I think doing the exercise of letting your characters speak to you is immersive and, and potentially really helpful. And it might get you to that amazing, um, you know, flash grenade way to open your movie, or it might just yield three-dimensional characters that have distinct voices um, and points of view. It's a good
0: practice. For sure. And, and it's a way for you to talk to yourself Also, like for tapping into your imagination, where it's just like imagination go. And then like later you can look at it with your logical brain and be like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that was in there. So it's a good discovery process Mm -hmm. for sure.
2: Mm -hmm. Brian? Uh, Well, we talked about it a little but something that struck me watching the movie this time more than any other time I've watched it, I think, is the the negative influence these characters have on each other um and obviously it's it's huge part of just how why these characters are sort of in this place they're in is because once one goes down then the others follow um and we talk about supporting characters being there to help push the the protagonists to make their positive change like help them complete their positive change arc um and usually that's because not always obviously but usually it's because protagonist is flawed in some way where the supporting character is not. And the supporting character is showing the protagonist how to correctly take on this theme or, or this idea or this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but Train Spotting is sort of the opposite, which is you surround Mark with these characters who are all bad and all sort of uh, negative influences on each other. You have Mark directly influence the one of the worst tragedies in the movie which is tommy's downfall but then the end of the movie the reason that you sort of celebrate mark like you said michael root for him is not because he gets off heroin because we've seen him do that three times in the movie and and it doesn't stick you know because he and and i think the london i love the london montage because it shows this new bright kind of future for mark and then the only, it only goes bad when the characters come back into his life and then everything goes to shit basically. Um, so I think the reason we root for him at the end of the movie is not because he has necessarily cleaned up his act or anything like that. Like he literally does a drug deal and then screws over his friends, you know, but what would, the reason we root for him is because he is finally removing himself from this circle of of his supporting characters basically. So we are saying like he is physically around these people who are doing him a disservice and then the reason he is is sort of complete at the end of the movie is because he actually walks away from them. So I think designing these supporting characters in a way where the most powerful thing you can do is just to leave.
0: Mm. For sure. It speaks to, again, in the movie's defense, I think it does speak to um, one of the reasons these cycles happen is because of like the social pressure and, yeah, feeling an obligation to the people around you and all those things. But yeah, and it is kind of funny and awesome that, yeah, the way he grows is by screwing over people after a drug dealer. Like that is the completion of a character arc that is like legitimately awesome. Yeah. I think for me, the thing I was struck by start to finish was the, momentum of the filmmaking. Yes. And it's Mm -hmm. just, it like, it takes you on a ride. And it. there are movies that I think try to do it where they're just like bashing you over the head with it and just like constantly like, we're going to go fast and show you things constantly. And look, it's style, like style, style, style. (laughs) And it can be like exhausting and kind of not accomplish that thing. And so I feel like this movie somehow strikes us really nice balance where it never feels like it's just out of control Mm. uh and it never feels like we're stalled and kind of just waiting for the next thing to happen right like despite like bumps that I was having about just like the shock of what I was seeing at every moment there was I felt like I was being carried forth along this journey in a way that feels very confident Mm -hmm. uh that is just super I respected like from start to finish so yeah, the editing and the rhythm and the nice balanced momentum of the film I thought was extremely impressive. Yes. And I could see also how it clearly inspired films that came after it that I right. also loved, which is always one of the reasons to go back and watch these old classics is to understand, okay, this is where all of this started and everything else has been a, an iteration on, on this idea.
4: Mm-hmm. Super old classic.
0: 1996. <laughs> 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 96. <laughs>
4: it is a longer 20, time 20 ago than ago, i
0: would like 20 24 years ago it's yeah. a while
1: now <laughs>
0: yeah cool why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently brian do you want to start us off
2: sure um i rewatched a movie that i love and have seen many times uh the 1979 movie being there directed by hal ashby uh who also directed harold and Maude, famously um and it's sort of one of those, as we kind of talked about with Francis Ford Coppola a little bit, like one of those very realist directors where you just feel like you're watching almost like a documentary the way he presents things. But it stars Peter Sellers and Shirley MacLaine. And Peter Sellers is a 50-year-old man who's a gardener and he has never left this house where it's sort of a mystery how he even ended up there. But like this old man lives there and he's, and he's just his gardener. And the old man dies, and Peter Sellers has to go out on his own, but he has no experience. So he's basically like a child. Basically, he has no experience with the world. Everything he knows, he knows from from watching TV, and he sort of has no like emotional connection to anything. And then he meets Shirley MacLaine, who is awesome in this movie, uh, and she's part of this fo- political family. So she takes him in, and basically, because he is this blank slate of a character, all the other characters he meets imprint on him. So anything. He says in their mind, he's saying what they think uh, he should be saying, basically. So the, the midpoint of the movie is he meets the president of the United States and the president asks him about the economy or something. He says, what do you think about the growth? And then he hears the word growth. So he just thinks about gardening because the only thing he knows. And he says, well, as long as the roots are not severed, there will be, uh, you know, there will, there will be growth in, in the winter or, or in the spring and summer. And the president says, ah, so what you're saying is that as long as the financial blah, 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 you know, and then uh, and then Shirley McLean sort of falls in love with them and everything. So it's just this like, Mm -hmm. I just love it explores this theme of confirmation bias where basically every everybody just thinks everything they read or see or hear. They think he's a genius. Right. They think he's a genius. But also to me, it's not about him as much as it's about telling of those characters, which is that like when you just everything you read, you get to some. political sort of arguments all the time everything you read or see or hear you just think it is supporting your argument even if it's saying the complete opposite thing you know (laughs) so it's just always that like our you know four people watch a movie and we all think the movie is saying a different thing or something um but it's sort of like all the people he is is around are absurd uh but in a way that feels sort of earned by the movie because they all just want they want to believe a certain thing so they just assume that he is completely uh you know saying exactly what they want to hear basically and uh, and it's just a really fun movie that i love watching yeah that sounds cool
1: it's kind of like forrest gump or at least that's what it always reminds
2: me mm-hmm. of
0: yeah yeah it kind of sounded like For- yeah people projecting onto mm-hmm. right awesome trisha what have you been watching
1: um so i saw a movie that came out in 2020
0: wow how is I that know. possible <laughs> Not well, like it's on Amazon.
1: A... <laughs> it's on Amazon. It's an okay. Amazon original. Um, it's a very, very interesting movie that I think you guys would really like called The Vast of Night. Okay. It is uh, directed by Andrew Patterson, also written and produced by him, starring Jake Horowitz and Sierra McCormick. It is this 1950s Twilight Zone, kind of uh, some Stranger Things vibes to it, but but just very stylistically fascinating. It's super low budget, but it's just like breathtakingly confident. It's almost like a podcast that you watch in some ways where, (laughs) where there are lots of really, really long shots that sort of capture that radio theater kind of feeling to it. And so it's, it's set in this really small town. The main characters are the radio operator in this or the radio DJ kind of like personality. Uh, guy in the town and then there's a young woman who is the switchboard operator and so there's like radio interference with them and like the switchboards fuzzing out and he's getting interference at the radio station so they're like kind of working together to try to figure out what's going on it's like maybe an alien invasion thing it's very 50s sci-fi but it's just really stylish and interesting so this uh, director andrew patterson is a mostly commercial director but Definitely, like, had a vision for this movie, and I really, really enjoyed it. So it's in my top films of 2020 so far, I would say. Nice. (laughs) I'll check it out. The Vast of Night.
0: Yeah, looking through this, the cinematography looks gorgeous. It's
1: great, yeah. Like,
0: frustratingly so.
1: (laughs) That was my feeling exactly.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Alex, what have you been watching? Uh, Recently, uh, my husband and I were Netflix scrolling, and uh, one of his favorite films, and mine, is V for Vendetta. Mm. And so we just started like watching like a scene from it and then we just kept going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just reminded me how much I love that movie. Like I just really, really love Before Vendetta. I love the just kind of going all out with the kind of political nature of it. Uh, I love the music. I love uh, the performances. I love the kind of like, there's uh, the the director. His last name's is uh, McTeague. He, he was like a, he was basically like a second unit director or assistant director to the Wachowskis. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they wrote Vendetta and he directed it. And he, he does a lot of these sequences have this kind of like a momentum building montage where you have all the threads of a story, almost like past, present, future, they come together in this really climactic way and with the uh, Dario Marinelli music and just mm. there's just something that's just like pure cinema about me for Vendetta for me that just makes me so happy. And it also felt really resonant and weirdly appropriate for our, like yeah. conspiracy theory, <laughs> revolutionary time. Um, right. So, yeah. Anyway, I, I would recommend revisiting it at any time because it's just a really interesting, enjoyable movie. I like it a lot. Nice. Yeah, I feel like it's a movie that definitely benefited from me being
0: 19 or whatever I was when I came out and just Mm -hmm. like it, watching it in that moment, it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's like Like, the Bush years. Right, yeah. Yeah. Well,
4: but but what I'm saying is like, for me at least, like I enjoyed it just as much. Like just just the pure bombastic filmmaking I just loved. So (laughs) it's worth revisiting. I think it may hold up for you too. Awesome. So I have
0: off and on been... Rewatching a thing that I watched last year. So last year, one of my good friends got uh, married, and so for the bachelor party, <laughs> I don't know, it was just I, not what I was expecting at the time. Right. End. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for the bachelor party, we had a, a very us bachelor party where we played video games all weekend and watched silly videos. But one of the things that he really had just seen, because so he's a big Oakland A's fan and knows like the history of the Oakland A's, the baseball team for people that might not or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's a short on Netflix from The Lonely Island that is the unauthorized Bash Brothers experience. Wow. And so it's a short that is sending up Beyonce's Lemonade. Like it's a visual rap album poem uh, about the (laughs) late 80s. Baseball stars Jose Canseco and Mark mcguire mm-hmm. and tr- and it's so it was kind of fast, so it's ridiculous, right? Because it's still on the island, but it's tracking the actual kind of like rise and fall of these people. So it's like kind of actually telling a surprisingly compelling story, and like the music is actually really fun and good and emotional at times. So it was kind of just like the surprise thing where I we started watching and I was like, I'm going to hate this. This is the dumbest thing ever. Uh, And it was actually wonderful. And the highlight is uh, a song called Oakland Nights because it's the Oakland A's. And it's this like, you know, R&B, you know, like (laughs) "Mm, Oakland Nights. Yeah. Uh, And Sia is one of there's a ton of guest stars, but Sia is in it. And if you watch the music videos also on YouTube, if you watch it, Sia, who, of course, never appears on screen. Right. Right. So Sia comes in and it's Sterling K. Brown as Sia. (gasps) And it is just delightful. He is oh so committed to being Sia, and the song <laughs> is wonderful. And it's, I just, if you want to go have fun, go watch the Oakland Nights video from the unauthorized Bash Brothers experience by The Lonely Island.
1: Wow. What a note to end on.
0: Yeah. Indeed. So, this has been our conversation <laughs> on terrain spotting. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to the patrons for supporting the show and making it possible. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.